That's page 283 of the Bibles in the seats. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen and 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks and fattened fowl. For he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates from Tipsa to Gaza, over all the kings west of the Euphrates, and he had peace on all sides around him. And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, even man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And those officers supplied provisions for King Solomon and for all who came to King Solomon's table, each one in his month. They let nothing be lacking. Barley also and straw for the horses and swift steeds they brought to the place where it was required, each according to his duty. Thanks, Stu. Well, if you'd like to keep that passage open in front of you, we're going to look at that and uh, through another few sections of First Kings. Uh, but as we do that, let's pray and ask for God's help. Our Lord God, we praise and thank you for this opportunity to gather round your word. Lord, we pray that as we do that, that we would know you more, that your spirit would apply your word to our hearts, that we might be refreshed and, and ready to serve you in all that you have for us in this world. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the consistent themes in the news over the past few weeks during Russia's invasion of the Ukraine have been stories of the sanctions that have been applied to Russian oligarchs. Uh, countries around the world have sought to put the squeeze on these figures who possess incredible levels of wealth that we can find it hard to get our heads around. Uh, one article that I was reading sought to tot up the property values of some of the Russian oligarchs who are based in London. And the amounts were eye-watering. One individual owned a property in North London recently valued at £82 million. But that was dwarfed by the value of his £500 million super yacht. It can be hard for us to hear figures like that at a time of rising costs when people are feeling the, the squeeze in their own households. And then we, we come to the reign of King Solomon, and we have several accounts in the section of First Kings that describe levels of wealth that make even Russian oligarchs look a bit skint. The passage that was just read to us gives us a description of the daily food portion in Solomon's courts. Uh, we read, read there in verse 22, Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores. That's about 6,600 liters of fine flour and 60 cores, 13,200 liters of meal, 10 fat oxen and 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fat and fowl. Now, that is an extraordinary amount of food. 
Try and imagine how many Tesco delivery vans would need to come to your front door to drop all that food off. And that was just for one day. Later on in 1 Kings, in chapter 10, we read about Solomon's annual income of gold. We read verse 14. Now, the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. Besides that which came from the explorers and from the business of the merchants and from all the kings of the West and from the governors of the land. 666 talents today would be the equivalent of one billion pounds. And that's just the gold. That doesn't include any of the income that came to him from all those other sources. Solomon's wealth was on a different level. When the Queen of Sheba came to visit, we're told in verse 4 of chapter 10, and when the Queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. If you ever wondered what the origins of the phrase, it took your breath away, there they are. The sight of Solomon's vast wealth took the Queen of Sheba's breath away. The descriptions of Solomon's riches in First Kings, they truly are breathtaking. But what are we meant to do with that? What are we meant to make of such enormous wealth? Are we meant to see these descriptions as a good thing or as something bad and needless extravagance? Well, when it comes to Solomon's wealth and Solomon's use of his wealth, I think that we're meant to see three things, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And in each case, there are lessons for us to learn as we think about how we consider our own approach to wealth. So first of all, the good. You know, sometimes people can see wealth as a bad thing, but wealth in and of itself isn't bad. In fact, Solomon's wealth was a blessing from God. Back in chapter 3, after Solomon asked for wisdom, we read of God's promise to him. God says in verse 13 of chapter 3, I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. So it's quite clear that God blessed Solomon with incomparable riches. And it's clear from Solomon's reign that he didn't just keep all that incredible wealth to himself. He was a generous king. When the fleet of Tesco delivery lorries rolled up at the front door of the palace, that was good news, not just for King Solomon, but verse 27 of chapter 4, for all who came to the king's table. Solomon shared his food around. When the Queen of Sheba visits, she declares in chapter 10, verse 8, that Solomon's reign was good news for all Israel. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who is delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king. Solomon's wealth was a blessing for the nation. 
God's people benefited from his generosity. Wealth, prosperity, when used generously, it benefits the people of God. And as a church, we've been recipients of wonderful generosity over the years. The story of buying this building is a story of incredible generosity. Within the space of six months, nearly a million pound was raised to buy this building because people chose to share their wealth to advance God's mission here in Leith. Many of that, those people were people who've never even been in Leith, people from other parts of the world who gave generously. God provided through His people, and here we are, slap bang in the middle of the most densely populated street in Scotland, with the opportunity to share the good news of Jesus with our community. An incredible amount of good can be done when wealth is shared generously and not hoarded. But sadly, Solomon's generosity, it wasn't the whole story. For all the good that he did, there was a bad side to the way that he used his wealth. Now, last time we were in 1 Kings, we were looking at Solomon's worship uh, as we looked at the construction of the temple. And in the middle of that section on the building of the temple, a section that stretches from chapter 5 to chapter 8, we have this little interlude of 12 verses at the beginning of chapter 7. And in those verses, we're told about the construction of Solomon's own house. It's a small section, but it reveals a lot about where Solomon's priorities began to lie. We're told at the very end of chapter 6 that the construction of the temple of God's house, it took seven years. But then we get to verse 1 of chapter 7, and we read, Solomon was building his own house 13 years. He spent nearly twice as long on his own palace, which was far bigger than the temple. And he certainly didn't spare any expense. Solomon's palace was kitted out with, with premium materials throughout. Uh, we're told that the wood that was used throughout his house was cedar, uh, which was the absolute top of the range. And we're told repeatedly that, that costly stone was used everywhere. Solomon used nothing but the best materials on his palace. And he had a particular penchant for gold shields when it came to interior design. We're told in verse 16 of chapter 10 that King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield, and he made 300 shields of beaten gold. Three miners of gold went into each shield, and the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon, which was part of the palace. Now, just to get a handle on what those shields would cost in today's money, a shekel was about 11 grams, and each large shield was 600 shekels of gold. Gold is currently trading at 49 pounds per gram. So each large shield was worth in the region of 325,000 pounds. And Solomon had 200 of them. 
And that's before you get to the 300 other shields that were each worth about 90,000 pounds. Now, how many shields does one guy need? 92 million pounds worth? Probably not. And then we get to Solomon's throne. In chapter 10, verse 18, we read, the king also made a great ivory throne and overlaid it with the finest gold. The writer goes on to describe this unbelievably ornate piece of furniture, and we're told, verse 20, that the like of it was never made in any kingdom. Solomon's throne was the envy of the world, a gold-plated ivory throne. Then we're told all about the drinking cups in the palace. In fact, there was so much gold going about that silver was of almost no value. We're told, verse 23, that Solomon excelled the kings of the earth in riches. You get the picture. While Solomon was generous, the amount of money that he spent on himself was totally obscene. He could easily have been far more generous with all that God had given him. Now, while we might not be drinking out of golden goblets or sitting on gold-plated ivory thrones, it's worth stopping and asking ourselves, how are we using our wealth? In the Old Testament, God's people gave a tithe. That's 10% of their income to God. Uh, We're no longer bound by a specific percentage, but it's a helpful guideline as we think about our own use of money. Uh, Another way of thinking about it is to ask ourselves, what does my spending say about what's important to me? How much do I spend on necessity? And how much do I spend on luxury? How much am I hoarding my wealth for a rainy day? Where am I being extravagant? Where could I be a wee bit more sacrificial? If I was to look at my bank statement over the past month, what would it say about my priorities? How would my spending on myself compare with what I've given to advance God's kingdom or alleviate the needs of others? What are the equivalents to our shields on the wall? Where am I spending money excessively on myself, on my appearance, on my comfort, on my pleasure that could be redirected for the glory of God? Solomon was the richest man in the world at the time. He could have afforded to given far more away than just 10%. And yet he lived at a level of extravagance that showed that his heart had turned to the God of gold. And if we were in any doubt about that, we only need to look at the ugly side of Solomon's wealth. We read in verse 28 of chapter 10, and Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Kew, and the king's traders received them from Kew at a price. A chariot could be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. 
And so, the, so through the king's traders, they were exported to all the kings of the Hittites and kings of Syria. Solomon accumulated even more wealth by doing a roaring trade in horses. He bought low from Egypt and he sold high to Syria. Now, on the surface of it, that might just seem like an astute piece of business by a wise king. But delve a bit deeper and we get an insight into how far Solomon's gaze had been gripped by gold. What Solomon was doing was essentially acting as an arms dealer, trading horses that would be used by the Hittites and the Syrians as part of their armies, armies that would one day be turned against Israel itself. But even worse than that, buying horses from Egypt was a direct violation of God's command to Israel's kings. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 16, that the king must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. Solomon chose to disobey God's clear command. I mean, it couldn't really be any more explicit. God actually named the place that you weren't meant to go and buy horses. And yet Solomon chose to go exactly there, to return to the place where God's people had been enslaved. And he did it just so that he could turn a prophet. His heart had been so captivated by gold that he returned to the place of captivity to satisfy his lust. He was willing to act sinfully if it meant that it lined his pockets. There is an ugly side to wealth. Money accumulated or saved dishonestly in disobedience to God's commands. But even if we aren't fiddling our expenses or leaving amounts undeclared on our tax returns, it's worth asking ourselves, is my heart so captivated by gold that the honor and glory of God is barely even an afterthought in my spending decisions? Do I see what I have as something that I've earned and it's to be spent as I see fit? Or do I recognize that all that I have has been given by God? Do I recognize His lavish generosity in my life? Most of all, in the gift of His Son. You see, even Solomon, in all his riches, was only a flawed foreshadowing of a king who was immeasurably more wealthy. A king who chose not to amass wealth for himself, but instead, in his lavish generosity, for our sake, he became poor so that we, by his poverty, might become rich. 
not a, a wealth that, that means that we can hang our shields on the walls for a few years. No, a far greater wealth, uh, the greatest wealth of all, a wealth that brings forgiveness and freedom from the punishment of sin for anyone who puts their trust in Him. A wealth that means that we can know God as a heavenly Father who delights to call us His. A wealth that secures for us as His adopted children an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. A wealth that frees us to be generous with the wealth that God has given us in this life, knowing that God in His lavish generosity has already given me the greatest riches of all in King Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You that You are a God of lavish generosity, that in Christ You have given us immeasurably more than we could possibly ask or imagine. You have given us a glorious eternal inheritance that we will be able to enjoy forever in your presence. And Lord God, as we lift our eyes to see what a generous King we have in Christ, would you give us hearts that are generous, hearts that sit loosely to the things of this world, hearts that have a deep desire to see your kingdom grow as we use what you've given us for your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, something that we do regularly here is take time to remember Jesus' death by taking bread and wine together. The bread and wine represent a meal that Jesus shared with his disciples shortly before he died. The bread represents Jesus' broken body and the wine, the blood that he shed. And as we come to this table today, it's a visible reminder to us of God's lavish generosity. It's, as we come to this table, we can remember what God has given us in Jesus Christ. It's the greatest gift. It's the most wonderful wealth that we could possibly possess. At that meal, Jesus took bread and he broke it and he said to his disciples, this is my body broken for you. Take, eat, and remember me. He also took wine and he said to them, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Drink and remember me. Jesus called all who loved and followed him to share in this meal. And so here at Grace Church Leith, we invite all those who love and follow Jesus and who've been baptized to come and take the bread and wine. If you're not a Christian, we're delighted that you're here. And I just invite you to use this time to reflect on what we've just been looking at, that this gift, the most incredible gift that you could receive is available to you today. God offers you life, eternal life through Jesus Christ, forgiveness, freedom from sin, freedom from guilt through Jesus. So can I encourage you to receive Jesus and those, as those around you receive the bread and wine. The way we do this here, we're just going to stand and sing two songs.
And any time during those two songs, please feel free to step out to either one of the tables at the back and take the bread and wine. We're going to close our time by singing Beneath the Cross of Jesus and Christ is Mine Forevermore. Well, let's uh, stand together, shall we? days that God has numbered I was made to walk with him yet I look for worldly treasure and forsake the king of kings 
time is hoping, my Redeemer, though I fall, His love is sure, for Christ has paid for every failing, I am His forevermore. Mine are tears in times of sorrow, darkness not yet understood. Through the valley I must travel, where I see no earthly good. Mine is peace that flows from heaven, and the strength in times of need. I know my pain will not be wasted, Christ completes His work. Mine are days here as a stranger, pilgrim on a narrow way. One with Christ I will encounter, harm and hatred for his name. Mine is armor for this battle, strong enough to last the war. He has said he will deliver safely to the golden shore. Mine are keys to Zion City, where beside the King I walk. For there my heart has found its treasure, Christ is mine. Rejoice now, O my soul, for his love is my reward. Fear is gone and hope is sure. Christ is mine forevermore. Come rejoice now, O my soul, for his love is my reward. Fear is gone. may grace, mercy, and peace from Father, Son, and Holy Spirit rest and abide with us now and forever. Amen.